Hi, I'm Deb Hunter, and welcome to All Things Tudor, the podcast that blows the dust off the history books and brings the world of the Tudors roaring back to life. Each episode will bring you awesome guests and topics, stories, and revelations. The power, the sex, the scandals, the romance, and the ruthlessness. So join me, and together we'll pull back the curtain and discover the real lives of the Tudors. Hi, and welcome to All Things Tudor. I'm Deb Hunter, and today my very special guest is the author and historian, Sarah Gristwood. Sarah, how are you today? Fine, thank you, and delighted to speak with you. Well, likewise, thank you very much. I have to talk about your book, The Tudors in Love. It's just such a great book, and the courtly code behind the last medieval dynasty How long did it take you to research this? Where did you get your inspiration from? I always find the how long question hard to answer because, of course, in a sense, the answer is always all your life. I guess my interest in courtly love began though I didn't realise it then. As a young child, one of the first grown-up films I saw, Camelot, the movie, the movie of the musical. And although I had no idea at the time that when Vanessa Redgrave sung about the simple joys of maidenhood, she was actually, or Lerner and Lowe, was sending up courtly love, the whole theory. Nonetheless, it made an impression on me that's never gone away. Well, your book has made quite the impression, wasn't it? The BBC History Magazine Book of the Year for last year. You have rave reviews from Alison Weir and Tracy Borman. I mean, who can ask for more than that? What would be 10 things you learned while researching this book that would surprise us? The 10 things about the Tudors, you asked, didn't you? And, of course, the Tudors are everyone's favourite topic, if you like. So let's do it chronologically. Let's kick off with Henry VII, the founder of the dynasty. And I think the surprise for me about him is that he actually wasn't the miserly old grouch that we all think. I blame that portrait. We've all, all of us who love Tudors, seen that picture of Henry VII and not thought very much of it, basically. But when he landed on British shores, 1485, uh, to try and take over the country and claim his heritage, he was really quite a, a romantic figure. I mean, if you think about it, we do. You've got this prince from over the seas, sailing in to seize, you know, seize his inheritance and even rescue the princess, Elizabeth of York, who he married. And Henry VII was quite canny enough to know the value of this, of all this legend and history. He was the one who ensured that his and Elizabeth's first son would be christened Arthur and born at Winchester, 
which Thomas Mallory in the great Mort Dutter, Death of Arthur, just printed in 1485, that would be born at Winchester, which Mallory had decided, identified as Camelot. So from the start, the Tudor family were born on the crest of a romantic wave, if you like. Yes, even Henry VII. So that's my number one. And those are very good points. I just finished an article yesterday on his grandmother, Catherine Valois, and it did start quite the crest of romance. (laughs) Oh, well, that is interesting because, yes, absolutely. I don't want to try and preempt your article, but no, indeed, Catherine Valois was someone who definitely didn't just expect to live by the rules, did she? Someone who and just have her husband's chosen for her. No, she definitely took matters in her own hands, didn't she? (laughs) She definitely did. And of course, you know, the other moving on down the family line for the Tudors, you've got Edward IV and Elizabeth Woodville, another fine romantic story, as it was told. Absolutely. And another one that broke all the rules for love. So you're right, they wrote it on the crest of love and romance, and it really set the pace, don't you think? Yes, I do, definitely. Indeed, you know, you can see strong echoes of Edward IV, another one who sees the kingdom as a young prince, tall, blonde and handsome, and snatching this woman, Elizabeth Woodville, this beautiful young widow, in defiance of all the rules that said he should marry a royal princess. You can see very strong echoes of him in Henry VIII. And I guess that would really be my second point, my second surprise, that the young Henry VIII was, as Prince Anders, as young king, absolutely besotted with the courtly side of this chivalric fantasy. This idea, I think the Tudors were a dynasty in love with love. I mean, we tend to look back now and think of Henry VIII, Six Wives, another portrait, that huge Holbein one of him as this kind of bloated monster. But as a young and handsome man, he wrote, I love true where I did marry. And of course he did. Again, he was another one who liked to see himself as rescuing a princess, Catherine of Aragon. Again, we tend to think of her as this sort of rather dour, dumpy, older figure. But when the 18-year-old Henry, newly come to the throne, one of the first things he did was to marry her, marry this girl who'd had a, you know, a really tough time in England for the last few years. And, you know, he rode the joust as Corloyal, Sir Loyalheart. He was enormously fond of dressing up as Robin Hood or something and bursting into her bedchamber. And, you know, she had to pretend to be surprised. But really, for many years... Henry VIII was truly in love with his first wife, Catherine. That's so true, so very true. Mm. I love all the things you're bringing out. What would be your third one? Well, I guess that if Henry VIII liked to play by the rules of courtly love, and 
courtly love, it was this dream, this theory of love, if you like, that had held the imagination of aristocratic Europe in thrall for centuries, literally centuries, you know, since the late 12th century and the songs of the troubadours. And that gave Henry's imagination full play for many years. But the trouble is, it was never really equipped to cope with the realities of decades of marriage, of an ageing wife, of all problems of childbed, as Catherine of Aragon tried to give Henry the son he craved. And so, in a way, it was what paved the way for Anne Boleyn. And if you look at those letters Henry VIII wrote to Anne Boleyn, he's absolutely playing the role of the courtly love suitor. He's following the literal, actual rules that were laid down in the 12th century, but had become newly fashionable again, if you like, when he was growing up. So even though he's the king, Henry writes to Anne as her servant, my heart and I commend ourselves into your keeping. He's playing the role of being the knight kneeling at her feet, even though in fact he's the king of England. I mean, really, of course, I'd say, sorry, if I can do my fourth as well as my third, I'd say that courtly love also played a huge part in Anne Boleyn's downfall because we all still argue about what exactly led to the downfall of Anne Boleyn. Was it just Henry's desire for an heir? Was it court politics, you know, that she'd fallen out with Cromwell? Was it the fact that just he'd fallen out of love with her and in love with Jane Seymour? But was it also this business that this idea of Anne as the courtly mistress, the one who'd learned the rules of the game while she lived on the continent and in France, again, it didn't really work once they were married. And all those charges that were brought against her of flirtatious talk with other men... This was standard courtly love practice, but it gave a weapon into the hands of anyone who wanted to destroy her. Because courtly love was always an adulterous fantasy, basically. You know, it began on the idea of King Arthur, his wife Guinevere, and his best friend Lancelot, and Guinevere and Lancelot's adulterous passion. So really, it was always going to be a weapon that could be used against Anne. And even as she was taken to the tower, many of those same patterns still come up into play. Anne said that, you know, that perhaps her husband was only trying to test her. That's very much part of the old love game. Even the fact that most unusually, she was beheaded by the sword, not the axe. You know, really the only person around to be so. The sword was a huge symbol of this courtly chivalric fantasy, think King Arthur's Excalibur. So really, it does a lot to explain that great mystery of Anne's rise and fall, which fascinates us all today. It's really amazing how she's so enigmatic that 500 years later, here we are, talking about her 
Yes, I totally agree with that word enigmatic because I think it is in some ways it's how little evidence we have about Anne's actual personality, appearance even, that keeps us so fascinated. We know everything about her effect, the really dramatic effect on the kingdom when Henry fell in love with her, but we've got really singularly little actual personal writings for her, portraits, anything like that. And I think perhaps that's what allows all our imaginations to come into play. Very, very good points. So what's our next on the list? Okay. I think, sticking with the same theme, the theme of love for a minute, if that's okay, I think it's to do with Henry's daughter, Mary. Of course, he was succeeded immediately, as all your listeners will know, by his young son, Edward. But when Edward died very young, his daughter Mary came to the throne. And she's another one who we tend to see with hindsight, Bloody Mary. But, you know, because of the burnings of Protestants in her reign. But Mary, you know, when she started out, she didn't expect it to be that way. Even when the religious persecution began, there's every evidence that she kind of thought of it as a short, sharp shock that would soon bring England back to what she saw as the true faith. But the other thing about Mary, I think, is um, just how besotted she too was with this idea of love. And her marriage to her second cousin, Philip of Spain, or should have been a matter purely of practical politics. But guess what? Ambassadors noted that Mary was extraordinarily in love with her younger husband. And she's another one who had this really quite anachronistic idea. She wrote that if private persons may follow their own affections in choosing a spouse, may not princes challenge, claim an equal liberty? And I mean, most politicians of the 16th century would have said, well, frankly, no. But Mary was another Tudor and another one taken with this romantic ideal. What she wasn't, of course, was the only woman of power in Europe at at the time. That's something I wrote about in my last book, Game of Queens, how the 16th century really did see this huge explosion of female rule, if you like, whether from Queen's Regnant or from regents on the Habsburg Empire, for example, or in France, standing in for their absent husbands, brothers, nephews, sons. So I think Mary's rule still has quite a lot to teach us. It really does, and I'm so glad you brought her up because she is such a tragic figure of love. Mm. And like you said, I feel like you that she truly was in love with Philip and was probably so very disappointed, wasn't she? Yes, I think that I'm afraid there's not much. I agree with you. I don't think there's much doubt about that. I mean, I think he was making a pragmatic match. He didn't much want. Again, the evidence is he tried his best to play the role for a bit, partly at least in the hope of, you know, of having a son by Mary who could 
inherit England and join that too, you know, to the great Habsburg Empire. But when it became apparent that wasn't likely to happen, he departed fairly abruptly. Even though he too, I rather love that when Philip arrived in Winchester, you know, in the south of England, to meet Mary there, to marry, the first thing his courtiers did was rush off to Winchester Castle to see what is supposed to be King Arthur's round table hanging on the wall there. Henry VII had made big play of this, had taken foreign visitors to see it. Henry VIII had had it revamped, repainted, if you like, to reflect the Tudor dynasty. But even Philip of Spain paid a little bit of tribute to this theory. Very good point. And this is just a fascinating chat. What's next on your list? Okay, I think for my next two, maybe we should get off the subject of love for at least a minute or two. Fascinating though it is, at least to me. I think one of the surprises looking back is although the Tudors themselves were actually obsessed by the past, by their desire to give respectability to their new and rather fragile dynasty by linking themselves to the famous King Arthur who'd gone before and linking themselves to medieval ways of doing things, just how much of modern Britain certainly was born in the Tudor age. I mean, Henry VII started centralising government Thomas Cromwell, among others, massively developed this idea of a bureaucracy. I mean, Cromwell even began before his fall trying with some ideas that we know that we think of as being 20th century ones, like the idea of a kind of welfare state, if you like, the idea of government funded support for the poor, work programs, that kind of thing. Absolutely. And speaking of new things coming in, I've just this week come back from a tour with Alison Weir's tours of some of the great English Tudor sites. And at this particular time of year, of course, May, when they're all at their best. And I was speaking there about Tudor plants and Tudor gardens, because To anyone who knows England, who knows and loves English gardens, I think it's a real surprise to know just how much of what we think of as the staple look of the English garden, that the staple plants only came in in the Tudor age. Things like so-called tulipans, tulips, lilacs, many of the varieties of daffodils, even the bringing in of the hop had transformed British beer early in the 16th century. And roses that flower for a second season, because of course the Tudor garden had originally been flowering in May and June, but nothing like the explosion of autumn colour that we see today. And of course, there was then that huge amount of work classifying and identifying the new plants by men like John Gerard. But really, you can go around a modern, a classic English garden and think, oh, well, I know where that came in. That came in from Charles V's ambassador over in Constantinople. That came in via Spain and Amsterdam from the New World. 
plants like the hyacinth, many, many of our spring flowering bulbs were new and were greeted with huge excitement. That's so well put. And I had no idea all those things were Tudor influenced. Yes, that's what I'm saying. I think they are, that they came in in the 16th century. We tend to think of them as having been around forever. We tend to think of of plants like, oh, I don't know, the lilac, many of our varieties of daffodils and narcissi, and the very complicated, beautiful roses, as having been there in England. Well, they have been there for centuries, but they arrived, so many of them, in one huge burst in the Tudor age. And you were so right earlier. The Tudors, in a way, had one foot in the medieval era, and the other in our modern world, didn't they? Yes, I think that's very true. And I think looking back, we tend to forget the medieval one a bit, because I think we tend to think of the Tudors, and with good cause, as the first modern dynasty in England. But they really did have a feet strongly planted in the past as well. If you're a fan of Tudor history, come join us at All Things Tudor, a Facebook group dedicated to, well, all things Tudor. Members can contribute a wide array of subject matter about Tudor history. You can also listen to the All Things Tudor podcast. There's a book club and a weekly clubhouse live audio chat, often featuring very special guests. Look for upcoming surprises for the group members in 2022. Become a member of one of the largest groups of Tudor history enthusiasts on the planet. Simply go to the Facebook search bar, type in all things Tudor, select the option to join the group, and of course answer the membership questions. Join us now at All Things Tudor. Look forward to seeing you. And of course we can't talk about the Tudors and flowers and love without Shakespeare, and he's the one who said, love whose month is ever May. Well, indeed, precisely. And of course, May and May Day, hugely important in this whole courtly theory of love. Exactly. Sarah, what's next on your list for us? Okay, number eight, I think we are. Okay, well, we can't talk about the Tudors without giving some time to Elizabeth. I'm sure we all agree on that one. But again, hindsight, we look back on her as the Virgin Queen. But I think one thing that surprised me was just to what a degree absolutely everyone in the first years of her reign assumed she had to marry, would marry. I mean, we know that men like Cecil, her ministers, wanted her to marry. But at first, when she came to the throne, there was just no thought that she could tread any other path. I mean, oddly enough, the one person who might have known a bit more about it was Robert Dudley, the man who actually hoped to marry her. But he later said that even as a child, she'd sworn she wouldn't marry. But ambassadors were writing, everything depends on the husband this woman, Elizabeth, will take. Charles V saying, you know, the fact that she might want to remain unmarried and unprotected is inconceivable. Absolutely everyone was convinced this was going to happen. And the only question is, to who? When over the years, 
it became apparent that Elizabeth, no, she really wasn't going to. Then the question was kind of how to make it work, how to kind of give an acceptable coding, a language for Elizabeth as a single unmarried monarch. And again, this old sort of idea of the courtly lady who wasn't trapped by her marital status, of this superior lady and all her suitors kneeling around her. Again, that really helped. That again came into play. Oh, I love the way she literally played them and made everyone bow down to her and bring her gifts. And I really think that's the way it should be. (laughs) Well, quite. I mean, (laughs) don't we all want a bit of that? I I think part of our fascination with Anne Boleyn also is, well, given that ambassadors said she wasn't a great beauty, what did she have to keep Henry so fascinated? And can I have some of it? But, yeah, I totally agree with you. I think we all still want a bit of that today. Absolutely. And I wonder sometimes, did the ambassadors write that because that's what their monarchs wanted to hear? What, that Elizabeth would and should marry? Well, I mean, I dare say it was what their bosses wanted to hear. But, no, I actually think everyone genuinely believed it. After all, although Elizabeth's female monarchy, in many ways the way had been paved by her sister Mary, Mary married. And in doing so, of course, brought about exactly some of the problems that people had feared about her, about a female sovereign. It was a question of who would she marry and how much influence would her husband and her husband's country exert over her. But no, the idea of a female sovereign had, until Mary came along, been desperately controversial. And the idea of an unmarried one was just beyond the pale. It's greatly to Elizabeth's credit, really, that she made it seem not only possible, but natural, inevitable. So very true. So very true. And actually, that's something that's just being echoed here. I don't know if I'm allowed to say, but on the actual day you and I are speaking, last night, we all watched on television the first major event of Queen Elizabeth II's Platinum Jubilee, which, of course, is being celebrated this year and over the next month. And it featured, it was a great pageant of horses, guns, everything else. It also had Dame Helen Mirren dressed as Elizabeth I and giving Elizabeth's famous speech at Tilbury. And I mean, in a way, we all know that Elizabeth's reign wasn't quite such a simple matter of kind of easy triumphalism, of of armada victory, as they were pretending in the pageant last night and as the school children used to be taught. I guess that would be my ninth thing, really, in a way, that I do now see why some historians speak about Elizabeth's second reign, a kind of last, oh, 15 years or so, 
much less successful than the first 30 years had been. I do see how perhaps Elizabeth's grip began to fail, how the younger courtiers who came in later in her reign weren't prepared to support her or pay sincere homage in quite the way earlier ones had done, that the young men at court did become tired of an old woman's government. Problems in the country, a series of dreadful famines, international isolation. So I guess that's one thing that I came to feel the force of as I worked on this and my previous books. And I guess really that leads on to my last point, my last surprise, if I may, And that's, it's another thing about how history is written by the winners. So we look back now, or certainly I was taught as a schoolchild, that in 1603, the accession of James of Scotland, it's just presented as her kinsman James succeeded her. Well, of course he did. In fact, it was nothing like that simple. It's actually quite fascinating, especially at a time now when we're even talking about a little bit about the succession in England today. But certainly, although behind the scenes, Elizabeth's ministers had effectively done a deal with James of Scotland, he's the best candidate, a, a Protestant, a male, an experienced ruler. There were many other candidates considered. You know, there'd been a famous, Dolman's famous book had actually picked on the Spanish Infanta as being the natural person just to succeed Elizabeth. My first book was about Arbella Stewart, who at one time was expected to be the next queen. And indeed, people, not only was it not clear who would succeed Elizabeth, it wasn't even clear how that person would be chosen. Was it closest direct right of blood? Was it Parliament's voice? Was it the voice of the last dying monarch? Because the ministers asked the dying Elizabeth, didn't they, to name her successor. They at least claimed afterwards that she made the sign of a crown above her head and they took that to mean the King of Scotland. But I do feel the real uncertainty over the succession in 1603 and just how much we've forgotten about that now, how much we tend to overlook it, really says something about our whole view of history and how many lessons it still has to teach us, how many surprises to give. That was my 10th. This is completely captivating. I don't know if that's interested you too, that question of the succession after Elizabeth. I find it a really interesting moment. It truly is. And it's interesting to me that she overruled her father's will and went with Margaret Tudor's great-grandson instead of going with what Henry VIII wanted. That just shows how strong-willed she was. Yes, well, indeed. No pun intended. Yeah, no, 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 I know. Or indeed, I mean, my own view is that she must have at least accepted that, yes, it would be James, because I think she was too clever a woman, even in her last years, to be unaware 
that all her ministers were secretly in communication with King James. I mean, there's that famous story, isn't there, of of a letter from James to Robert Cecil, who'd succeeded his father as Elizabeth's first minister, arriving when Elizabeth was standing there, which if she'd known what it was, could have cost Cecil his career and possibly his head. He had to pretend that it had a bad smell because Elizabeth famously hated bad smells and she waved it away. She didn't read it. But I think Elizabeth must have had a pretty shrewd idea what was going on, whether or not she wanted to admit it, even to herself. But as you say, I mean, you know, Henry VIII had tried to lay down this rule for the succession. Then his son Edward, of course, really overthrew things again, because Henry had said that Edward should be succeeded if he died childless by his half-sisters, Mary and Elizabeth. And Edward tried to overturn that to put Jane Grey on the throne. So really, the whole 16th century succession questions, it's another one with a lot of surprises for us. And when you look at the sort of the kind of the child's book version of history, it makes it look all natural and, and inevitable. But of course, at the time, it absolutely wasn't. England could have been tipped into civil war many times before, in the 17th century, it finally was. Very good points. Let's go to 11. I have to ask you, Elizabeth and Dudley, Elizabeth and Essex, (laughs) was she trying to recreate what she had with Dudley with Essex? I'm not going to ask you if you think that she and Dudley were lovers, but if you want to answer that, I'm more than fine with anything you want to say. I was going to say, if you don't ask, let's make that number 12 and a good round dozen. (laughs) Yes, for the first question, I think that in many ways, Elizabeth with Essex was trying to recreate what she'd had with Robert Dudley. Because, of course, the pattern at the sequence of events very much bears that out. Dudley died suddenly and unexpectedly within weeks of the Spanish Armada victory, leaving Elizabeth utterly bereft, you know, locking herself in her room, refusing to speak to anyone. And Robert Dudley, the Earl of Leicester, had in a way already begun the process of replacing himself. He, of course, had long married another lady. So the Earl of Essex was his stepson. And Leicester seems to have brought Essex to court, almost hoping he'd catch Elizabeth's eye, that he could be in a way, you know, he could play the role of devoted suitor, of youthful interest that Dudley himself felt a bit too old and too tired and too busy to play. But the trouble is that although I think the earlier favourites like Dudley, like Christopher Hatton, had a huge, genuine affection and respect for Elizabeth. I'm not sure the younger men did, really. The Earl of Essex could write the romantic stuff when he needed to, but what he wrote about Elizabeth rather than to her tells a rather different story. As for the question of Elizabeth and Dudley and whether, to put it crudely, they did or they didn't, when I was many years ago writing a book on Elizabeth and Leicester, Every single person who heard I was writing about them asked me that. I mean, from journalist friends, a required 
brigadier, my 10-year-old goddaughter, what do they teach them in schools, and the man who came to mend the dishwasher. Everyone asked the same <laughs> question. I mean, I give you the only truly honest answer has to be we can't ever know for certain. The minute you admit that Elizabeth and Lester were ever be alone behind Dudley, were ever alone behind closed doors, then we have to admit we don't know what went on there. And they were alone because although Elizabeth was not always normally surrounded by ladies, by maids of honour, she did summon counsellors, summon of whom Lester Dudley was one, to consult with alone. But my best guess would be no. That very possibly they enjoyed a measure of, let's say, of physical intimacy. But I do not think that Elizabeth would have done anything that put her at risk of an unmarried pregnancy. I think she did have this real fear, political but also personal, visceral, of falling into the troubles of love and sex and childbirth that had beset other women of whom she knew so many, uh, her stepmothers, among others. So again, I think there may have been physical closeness, let not be any more graphic than that. But I believe Elizabeth really was the Virgin Queen. Yes, I do, technically at least. And may I just say, as you will discover, if anyone reads my book, that's another place where the actual rules of courtly love come into play there. I agree with you 100% on that. Thank you, Sarah. Let's circle around. You said you've basically been on tour with Alison Weir, and that sounds like a dream team if I've ever heard of one. What do you have coming up? Oh, well, I hope to be starting another Tudor book. I'm not sure if I'm allowed to talk about it yet or not, but let's just say my great pleasure is always tends to be women's stories, but in linking them together. And so this is about a handful of Tudor women, two of whom are very well known, two much, much less so. Look forward to talking to you more about that one at a later date. Absolutely. And you know, I'm not shy, so I will be after you to come back on here. So that's not a problem. <laughs> it would be a great pleasure. Oh, thank you. And I understand you're going to be at the Chalk Valley History Festival this year? I am indeed. And heaven knows that's a, a great pleasure always. I mean, Chalk Valley, it's our huge bonanza of history. It's talks, recreations, events, but it's a vast number of like-minded people coming together to celebrate in this very, very beautiful part of the Southern Counties. And it's just, you know how in the rest of your life, you start up a conversation and you can see half your friends, certainly your husband's thinking, oh, not the, you know, not the Tudors again, not history again. Well, <laughs> Chalk Valley, yes, Chalk Valley is where we all get to let our hair down. Tudor enthusiasts, medieval military historians, it's a huge smorgasbord of history, and I can't wait. 
That sounds fabulous. What day and time will you be appearing and what will your subject matter be? I'm there on the 20th of June, about tea time, and I'm speaking about the Tudors in love and about courtly love. There's a lot more to say. And then the next morning I'm doing an event with some school children, I believe. So that'll be interesting. That is so great to hear, and I do wish I could be there to see you. And thank you again for being on All Things Tudor. This has been an enchanting talk, and I look forward to reading more of your books, hearing about your upcoming book, and you are welcome to come back at any time. Thank you very much. Thank you, Sarah. You've been listening to All Things Tudor. My thanks go to listeners, my husband, and my team. If you like what you hear, leave a review, follow wherever you get your podcast, and share with your friends to help others find the show. Join the All Things Tudor Facebook community to connect with tens of thousands of Tudor history lovers. You can also connect with me across social media at the Deb ATL. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch y'all later.